Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. Dominique and I love to talk about horses and horse training. So having an excuse to get together to record these podcasts has been great fun. In last week's podcast, we began a conversation with Cindy Martin, one of my Click the Teaches coaches. Cindy hosts a workshop twice a year for me at her farm. On Tuesday morning, before I had to head off to the airport, Cindy and I sat at her dining room table and recorded a very long conversation. Through the wonders of the internet, Dominique was able to join us from her home in Quebec. Cindy and Dominique have not yet met, so we spent the first part of the conversation letting Cindy talk about her background and the horse that brought her into clicker training. Through him, she has become a behavior junkie. And one of the things that I so appreciate about Cindy is her ability to translate what can be very esoteric and very hard to understand concepts from the field of behavioral analysis. And she translates them into metaphors and stories that make them so much more understandable and so much more useful. So that's what I invited her to do during this conversation. We're going to begin with a term that has very real meaning for ethologists, people who are studying the group dynamics of wild animals. But when applied to training, it can lead us down pathways that result in some very harsh and often unnecessary solutions. That term is dominance. We'll pick up the conversation where we left off last week. Over the years of doing the clinics, there have been some ways that you have of explaining some of these concepts to people that I just find are really powerful. One of the ones that I really love is the way that you talk about a very common label that's in both the horse world and the dog world, which is dominance. The way that people think that they need to be the dominant animal in their dog pack or that their dog is dominating them or dominating another animal and the same dynamic in the horses. And so could you sort of conjure up how you talk about that? Because I think it's so very clear. Oh, well, thanks, Alex. I, I struggled with that concept for a long time, just as I struggled with a lot of the explanations of what I needed to do with the horses and dogs and how to do it. So, and, and, you know, these supposed experts were always talking about dominance. And of course it's made it into the sort of common conversation with dog owners, especially, and now with horse horses. people and you need to be the alpha mare and so on. And, and it, I, it just never set right with me. And I would read as much as I could about it to try to understand things. And, and, as I explored it, I stumbled across some information from Sophia Yin, who was a veterinarian who very interested in behavior and did a lot of work promoting a good approach to handling small animals primarily for veterinary care, but also teaching 
owners. She's published a number of books and things. And she had a great explanation about dominance. And it, it, it said, you know, that, that in the minds of ethologists, dominance is a relationship between two individuals of the same species that confers priority access to preferred resources upon one or the other in the relationship. So it's not this strict linear hierarchy uh, with regard to everything, and it doesn't confer absolute power on one individual among a group. And I went, oh, interesting. This is really, this is the, you know, this is operationalizing that term. I love, I like you, I'm a huge fan of Dr. Friedman. I took her LLA course a few years ago. It was the year of the invasion of the horse people who took her course. And there was a whole bunch of us horse trainers that took LLA, the Living and Learning with Animals course. And so I loved the notion of operationalizing things, of digging into labels and, and what that means and the idea that if you have a label and you say an animal is is this, it doesn't give you any solutions. But if you say the animal does this, we can get him to do something else. And I, I love that, and I loved you know her explanation about dominance as a circular definition. But when I started to which, think which about it, what? because that, I think it's well, worth, it's worth spelling that out. Okay. Well, no. she as she says, you know, you say, well, why is this animal doing this unwanted behavior? Well, because he's being dominant. He's dominant. Well, how do you know he's dominant? Because he's doing the behavior. Well, why is he doing the behavior? Because he's dominant. How do you know he's dominant? Because he's doing the behavior. And you kind of go round and round in circles. And I like cone circles, but I don't really like that particular circle. So, <laughs> right. so I kind of say, all right, let's get rid of that circle in this world. But so when I started to think about all these people saying, you know, you need to be, you need to be dominant. You need to train your horse this way. I thought, well, now wait a minute. If the the scientific definition of dominance is a relationship that gives one individual priority access to preferred resources, then in a way as clicker trainers, we are controlling our, I mean, let's face it, we are manipulating, controlling our learner's access to preferred resources. That's what a reinforcer is. It's something the animal wants. And we are controlling their access to it contingent on their behavior. So. We're actually the ultimate dominance trainers with our, <laughs> with our little bag full of hay pellets or my pocket full of, of liver treats for my dog. Mm. And it sort of spins that on its head that it's not who's the most forceful, but I am without force and in a way that makes it clear to the animal how they can access those resources. I'm in control of the relationship. I love the irony of that, uh, you know, that we are the ultimate dominance trainers. I just, I always just get a kick out of that. <laughs> the irony of it is. So I'm just going to, to be a little bit, I, I, I know that it is, it is interesting to have that irony and I think it can open doors to present it like that. It's very interesting. I like the idea of describing you know, dominance with something that is observable, like priority access to to certain resources. But I just want to bring also the perspective that we may think that we are controlling 
the whole process, but actually we want the animals to think that they are controlling us with their behavior, that this is how they're getting the outcomes they're looking for, um, and that they have control over it with their behaviors. But it's, isn't that the whole strength of clicker training, that it's a win-win situation? Exactly. Exactly. So the animal thinks that, oh, I've got control over my person. All I have to do is bump this little orange uh, cone over here, and they reach into my pocket and, and give me a treat, into their pocket and give me a treat. Yep. And what a glorious, I, fin I finally can control my human. And we, of course, are thinking this is the coolest thing because... I'm choosing the behaviors yep. that produce the treat. So it's a win-win situation. Yep. And particularly when you learn it really to really is. listen to your animal. Yep. And, and then this, this whole thing of your animal is not dominant because in a different situation where a particular resource is not one that he has any particular interest in, he may be yielding to the other horse that's in the paddock. So it's it's not this strict linear, oh, my horse is, the, is this dominant individual. That's not a sufficient label. You know, it's, it's true that like, I, my setup when I was still managing the Cavalia retired horses, I had just in front of my window for over, I don't know, eight, nine years, four mares in a paddock and it was really and I kept for hours I mean while I was working talking on the phone I would always look at the interaction between them and it was not always the same yes there was this this big Percheron mare that was what people would consider the alpha mare but there was a lot of nuances to be made there because sometimes there was the second one would would be for certain things, you know, the quote-unquote dominant one or would have access first to whatever she wanted. Over the years also, it changed a lot. The, the order completely changed as the older one became more, not as physically fit. But it's, so it's not a set thing that is all the time. It is true that it's not linear. You're right. Uh, my horses here live together as a herd, and there's a, I think if you really watch horses together, there's very mixed relationships. So I think people tend to filter it through their own eyes. And I didn't mean to suggest that that makes us these great controlling trainers. No, just, I know, I know. But it's I like I like that you bring it up. I like to I I, I find he, I like to find humor and irony in things. It's it's sort of yeah. my style. Alex will tell you. And, and probably inappropriate at times, but so I'll look at things no, like no, that. No, no, no. I think it's very appropriate. I love the I love the image. And I will, I want to share with you another uh, a little quote that really triggered this that for me. My thinking about dominance that came up on the Clicker Solutions dog training list. Um, someone wrote in, and it was a really you could tell it was somebody who was you know passionate about positive reinforcement and passionate about sort of debunking these that that sort of dominance justification for harsh training of dogs and they said well dominance just doesn't exist and she came back and she's a certified dog behaviorist and she said uh yes dominance does exist 
but it's not. She said, dominance relationships do exist among social species, but it's not an appropriate training strategy. Mm. In other words, don't use that to justify the way you're doing things. And if you're doing those things, they can be explained. Your techniques are far better explained through another lens, which I would say would be the lens of, of behavior science, than, than so the way you're explaining your technique and why it works, dominance doesn't have a role in that. I, I so agree with you. Every once in a while, I go back to certain books because I want to look at exercises that are suggested to teach my horses, and then I'm going to teach it my way. And in those books, you will see part of the information is actually correct. You know, scientifically, when someone says, well, uh, make the behavior you want easy and make the unwanted behaviors uncomfortable. We can understand this from the operant conditioning. You know, we can understand all the, in which quadrants we are, and it makes sense. But when you get all this other perspective about the dominance and the respect, now we're getting away from the science And so it's interesting to see, you know, the mix of accurate and non-accurate information, I find, in, in, from a scientific point of view, in a lot of traditional books. I think you're my sister from a different mother, Dominique, because <laughs> I do the same thing, and I feel this exactly the same way about it. And it's, it's kind of nice once, when, because I struggled with a lot of the same things, I think, Uh, you did, and trying to understand why is this person getting this res good results, but in the explanation, there were things that made, you know, that I couldn't wrap my head around, but once you have the knowledge of the learning theory, everything clears up. Exactly. You understand why traditional trainers, the ones who get results, you understand exactly why they are getting those results. You can ignore all the unscientific explanations, but be very clear that, okay, he's getting this because he's using negative reinforcement in a very efficient way. True. And then, of course, it's a matter of values and what, you know, what you're willing to do and not willing to do, but at least it's clear. You understand why, and it's not about dominance, and it's not about, or, you know, I've heard a kind of way of saying it, your horse needs to know that you're strong enough that he can rely and trust you. And how do you show him that you're strong enough? Well, you know, take your whip out and make a big fuss, and then he'll know that you're a strong horse you're alpha you're horse. the leader yeah I've, I've always you're struggled the leader with that whole leader concept as well and a horse wants a strong leader a, a little funny aside it, there's a story in the fox hunting world or not a story but an explanation in some places the hounds are cared for by an employee who looks after them feeds them every day even takes them for their exercise 
goes out in their play yard with them and interacts with them socially is probably the person who supervises when the puppies are whelped and the raising of the puppies and everything. I mean, that person is integral in their lives and is the one who feeds them. And yet, there might be a different person who is the one who takes them out to go hunting. Mm -hmm. And these are dogs that have been bred for centuries to put their noses on the ground and go find a scent line and then run it when they find it. And they say that the hounds will look to their huntsman, the person who takes them out hunting, more readily than the person who cares for them every day and feeds them. And that's a pretty powerful statement. Mm. That uh, and, and is he the better leader? Or is it that he's taking them out to this unbelievable, fabulous resource or reinforcer? Or is it that if the hound was to ignore this person, there would be strong enough consequences that override everything else? I don't think it's that because it is... No, it's, it's the access to the great sport outdoor being with the other dogs and the big enrichment. It really uh, is the access to the opportunity to go out. It's like the Border Collies. Their, their best reinforcer is to get to go work sheep. Mm-hmm. Right? That yeah. that's, exceeds food every day. Mm-hmm. And I think for those foxhounds, it's the same thing because there really are not, there are not good opportunities for very good, clear, c- contingent punishment in the hunt field. Okay. They just aren't. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you know, the hounds are trained to stay around the huntsman's horse when you're moving from place to place, but once they are released to go hunt, so I have to believe that they look to that person so strongly because that is the person who takes them out and does call to them and and is is the one that really takes them out for sport. Well, the other thing too is that Although you can be feeding, but if the it's feeding is not the same as a training session. If the feeding, the bowl is coming no matter what, you know, there's kind of no contingency there for having the bowl of food. Well, there's always some contingency. And, and I don't want, I mean, I don't think we need to go off on the side path too much about how hound kennels are managed and how the hounds are fed. But there's, you know, as Jesus says, there's always something there. They're always behaving and there's always behavioral contingencies going on. But I just think that that's an interesting, it brings in that idea that shows the power that a, uh, a really preferred reinforcer has. And, and the relationship of the person who is involved in sort of the stimulus conditions related to their access, their opportunity to gain, to access that, that reinforcer. Mm-hmm. It's pretty yeah. interesting. Yes, yeah. it is. It'd be a good subject uh, to, to try and unpeel it, but we'll keep that for another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the other metaphors that I love and it relates to the building of repertoire, which is so important, is your MP3 player metaphor. <laughs> okay. Well, I do, I do a lot of dog behavior consulting. Probably the certified behavior consultants will recoil when they hear me say that, but that's really what I do. I don't do group dog training classes. I will go in and help people with basic dog basic manners 
in private sessions if they want, but I don't have a facility to train dogs. I don't have a dog school or anything like that. So I go out, I get referrals from veterinarians, and I go help people when they're having problems with their dogs. So when I walk into somebody's home, and they haven't chosen me because I train with positive reinforcement. They don't know anything about me. They just get my card from the vet because they can't get their dog house trained, or their dogs are fighting, or they're, you know, they're just a variety of issues that their dog is jumping all over guests when they come in the home and so on. And some of that might seem like basic dog training, but the average public person doesn't see it that way. So I walk into somebody's home and I have an hour and a half or two hours to try to introduce them to all these cool concepts that we've learned from Dr. Friedman and from Professor Rosales Ruiz and from Alex, unlabel me, um, behavior is a study of one, all these really critical things that, that help us look at a situation, decide how we're going to approach it and how we're going to modify our animal's behavior. And, and we can just call that training, you know, how we can get them to walk nicely on the lead with us or how they can get a nice trot transition or how they can stand quietly for injections. So I have to explain that I can't take them through Dr. Friedman's course. I can't sit there and give them the whole behavior science. Here's your intro to behavior science. You can just see their eyes glaze over and their brains shut down. So I have to have a way to help them understand that their dog is behaving the way it is because that's how it behaves in this environment. It's responding to its environment and it doesn't, it can't think of anything else to do. This is the thing that it does and we have to introduce something else and they need to understand that. Not that their dog, it's like in the, that fabulous webinar you had with Dr. Friedman where she says, you know, do the, do the, the necropsy and show me where is the, where is that organ that is this thing that you're labeling the animal with. So I have to say, I have to explain to them, your dog basically has a limited repertoire. So the way I explain it to them so that they will sort of understand is I, and, and I, I think, I'm pretty sure I modified this from something, a comment I read somewhere from somebody, but I think I fleshed it out a bit myself. I say to people, you know how when you get a new device, it used to be an MP3 player, you know, an iPad pod and you put your music on it and you play your music you want to play music now everybody uses their phones for everything or their ipad but so you get a new device and it probably comes with a music player on it now maybe it's a new music player that you already know maybe it's itunes but maybe it's a newer version of itunes and it might come with say three free songs and if you want to listen to music and you turn it on right now it's going to shuffle through those three songs with a dog that's probably going to be jumping, barking, oh, maybe have four songs, jumping, barking, chewing, and digging, right? And and so if he's going to behave in his world, he's going to probably do one of those four things. So it's like playing, and so maybe you don't even like three out of the four songs that, that come on your new iPad. So if you were to turn it on and play it, it's going to shuffle through four songs and three of them you don't even like, and one of them you maybe like kind of, but it's not your music, it's not your playlist, it's not the stuff that you, that, that make your day great. So what we need to do is install the songs that you like 
and create your playlists so that when you want to listen to music, you just open iTunes, hit play, and it's going to run through the songs that you've set up in the order you want them to play so you can enjoy your music. I love this. And that's, that's installing the music and creating the playlists. That's training. Mm. We teach the dog the behaviors we want him to have. We play them often so they go to the top of the playlist. And then somewhere way down in the archives are those four behaviors that we didn't like, those four songs that came on the iPad to begin with. So what we want is four feet on the floor. And we want that dog, we want to play that song over and over and over and over again. So it's right there at the top of the playlist. And jumping is number 275 in the list of songs or behaviors that your dog can play for you in a certain situation. It's a great metaphor. Yeah. And you're, you're never removing those four songs. They, they stay on the player. So under the right conditions, they'll reemerge. But they're so deep down in that playlist that what you get is this other repertoire of songs and so we were talking uh, when at the beginning of the weekend on the drive from the airport we were chatting and you were talking about one of the keys to a good training program for the horse or a dog is this expanding of repertoire that repertoire and duration were sort of the two keys of really stabilizing a dog's behavior and ability to live in a household or the relationship with a horse. Cindy has just given us a great metaphor to help people understand why repertoire matters. This is a great place to end for today. In part three of this conversation, we're going to continue on to talk about an equally important and often elusive training concept. And that's the building of duration into the behaviors we teach. We're especially interested in those behaviors that help to create a calm starting point. Cindy and I share something that took place during the clinic. We helped a thoroughbred mayor go from an intense, high-pitched, anxious state when she was brought into a stall away from her pasture mates to a calm, working focus. And that takes us directly into a discussion of the behaviors that get attached to the other behaviors we're training. I hope you'll join us for another great conversation with Cindy. Until next time, have fun. <laughs>